What is mindfulness? Is it a panacea that will heal the world? Is it a tradition corrupted? Is it for everyone? As mindfulness continues to soar in popularity, many different interpretations have arisen. Hahnemann Goleman posed a series of questions to leaders who are shaping the movement in the hope of offering a broader perspective on the mindfulness landscape. Lama Surya Das is one of the foremost meditation teachers and scholars of Western Buddhism, and one of the main interpreters of Tibetan Buddhism in the West. He's the author of 13 books, including Awakening the Buddha Within, Tibetan Wisdom for the Modern World, and most recently, Buddha Standard Time. Mindfulness was the foundation of Surya Das's meditation background, and in this second conversation, he outlines his versions of the six kinds of Tibetan mindfulness. You mentioned that you've done some mindfulness throughout your training, and so I wonder what was the role of mindfulness in your own training? Well, in fact, being in the Tibetan tradition, I don't emphasize mindfulness as much as some of my friends do who are in you know, the Theravada and Vipassana or even Western secular mind training or mindfulness-based stress reduction kind of hospital trainings and things. But I grew up spiritually in insight meditation courses in India. My first teacher was Goenkaji, as we called him, Goenka, a Burmese Indian from Bombay who started the 10-day insight meditation, so-called mindfulness courses mindfulness and loving-kindness courses all over India and have spread all over the world. And really, his students like Joe Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield, and their friends in Western Mass particularly, uh, brought this to the West in the very early 70s and uh, first taught this at Trungpa's Naropa Institute at Trungpa Rinpoche's request in 74, I believe it was, when Naropa started and started the first three-month meditation mindfulness retreats from which came things like mindfulness-based stress reduction and other things later and the whole miracle of mindfulness that spread all over the world Thich Nhat Hans and others other miracles and now we see it in the mainstream like yoga very healthy so I learned mindfulness in those 10-day meditation courses starting in August of 1971 near the Holy Jane Mount Abu in the desert of Rajasthan. And I think your father and mother were there, Danny and Anasuya. I think Sharon was there. I know Krishna and Mira Bush were there and a whole bunch of, you know, our, our people. I went to 10 or 20 of those courses in the early 70s. Sometimes three in a row in Bodh Gaya the Burmese Vihar in the winter with those people like Joe Goldstein and others were there. So we became friends and have been ever since. So I was practicing Vipassana meditation those years, 71, 72, 73, 74, until when my first guru, Maharaji Nimkaroli Baba died, who gave me my name and you your name and your parents their names and our guru, Maharaji, who's still with us very much. When he died, or he took Mahasamadhi, as they say, in September of 1973 in India, in Mathura, at his, I'm getting emotional, but uh, near uh, Vrindavan, near his ashram in Vrindavan, Krishna's birthplace. Then I started to stay more full-time with my Tibetan gurus who I had met and been with on and off in the 71, 72, and 73. And I stayed at Kala Rinpoche's monastery, and then I did Tibetan practices and Tibetan Vajrayana training and, you know, that, and three-year retreats and things over the next decades. 
but are still doing some mindfulness practice as that's part of all Buddhist practices. So mindfulness was really the foundation of my meditation background, even though I had learned Zen in college. But it was hard to meditate regularly in college. I think I was never up during the mornings when meditation happened. I thought, I'm just joking. And it was too smoky anyway for like, you know, mindfulness of breathing. It wasn't a very healthy environment for, for that kind of meditation. I'm still joking, but I'm also telling something. You know, breathing in, holding it, breathing out, but not really meditating much in college. But then in, starting in 71 in India every day from then on. So mindfulness is very important to me. And mindfulness and loving kindness that goes with it, concentration, mindfulness and loving kindness, the three main practices that go together according to our teachers, Goenkaji, Meninjuji, and so forth. When I met Trungpa Rinpoche in 73 um, or 4, before Naropa Institute started in Colorado, and we talked, and he wasn't emphasizing mindfulness, but I asked him about it, and he talked about the four or five as he said, or he, he was translating from the Tibetan, the four close contemplations, which is the Tibetan version of mindfulness from the Mindfulness Sutra, the Satipatthana Sutra, the Buddhist origin of the mindfulness tradition. Tempa Shakshi in Tibetan, the four close contemplations. Vipassana teachers, Theravadan teachers, translated as the four foundations of mindfulness, as in the great classic book by Nyanapanaka uh, Matera. The Four Foundations of Mindfulness, classic text for all of us, meaning Buddhists in the world, written probably in the 60s. So Trungpa called it the Four Close Contemplations, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, translated from Tibetan, and he talked about them, and we discussed that, and you know, I was kind of like trying to understand what the Tibetan teachings were about this. Which, of course, it's in the sutras, so the Tibetans study the sutras and tantras. That's Tibetan Buddhist Mahayana, Padriyana Buddhism. So that was a very interesting talk we had. And then I did some of my desultory research, just poking around here and there, trying to read stuff in English, because I couldn't read Tibetan then, and find some decent translations or translators or teachers to talk about it. So that was very, very helpful. So it was very important to me. And it helped me have a firm ground, like um, I've been meditating ever since. Unlike most, and I'm going to say something critical here, unlike most Tibetan Buddhists who don't meditate a lot, just like I wouldn't say it was too critical to say most Western Christians don't, I don't know, pray that much, or most Jews don't necessarily pray that much, and some don't believe in God, but they're Jewish. So most Tibetan Buddhists don't meditate that much. Um, the Western Buddhists, at least coming from the mindfulness tradition, they've been emphasizing meditation, so there's a lot of meditation going down in the Buddhist ghetto in the West. And I think that's a great thing. And I know my own uh, teachers, when I brought them to America and introduced them to these people, like Kala Rinpoche and Yosho Kempo and others I brought and drove around and translated for and brought to places like Insight Center at Barry um, or Spirit Rock in California or other places, my teachers were so impressed that finally there are some people who want to meditate. They don't just want to tape their chanting or buy their Tonka scroll, wall hanging pictures, or hear about Tibetan miracle stories about flying and rebirth and visions. So 
I think that the mindfulness tradition in the West has been very, very important for me and for many in implementing the Buddhist teaching of practice makes perfect, and practice is perfect. You just do it. And we don't even have to wait for something good to happen because we know how things work. You plant the good seeds, all other things being equal in the right place, with the right weather, you get the good results. You don't have to worry about the future too much. So practice is perfect. We just do it. Maybe it's more of a Dzogchen saying than practice makes perfect. That would be more of a Vipassana's Theravada saying, maybe. So I found, in short, mindfulness is very important to me and in giving me a ground in life that I could be more conscious and aware every day in life, not just learn how to say long mantras or visualize complicated creative visualizations and do other things that are very much a part of Vajrayana Buddhism and other kinds of mysticism and meditation. And that's been very important to me. And also the mindfulness aspect, the friendliness, the metta, maitri, metta, doesn't just mean loving kindness, but also friendliness, literally. Openness, friendliness, positivity. This is in the uh, uh, etymology. You can look it up. The friendliness, the loving kindness, the well-wishing for others. Not just kind, but loving. Metta means maitri. Loving kindness means wishing well for others. Wow, I call it as a practice. Wishing others well. Just remember that. Whether it's the squirrel and birds that we see out the window there, or the turtles in the pond, or people, or your friends, family, enemies even, wishing well, because they're just like us, and they want to need the same as we do. That really opened my heart. So I wasn't, or should I say, so I didn't continue to become just an over-intellectual New York motor mind. And really make the journey a little, a little from the head to the heart, and opening the heart as well as clarifying and awakening and illuminating the mind, and warming up the heart, not just opening it and uh, for whatever purpose, but refining the inner spirit in, in, in the deepest, really inexpressible way. Uh, that's what the loving kindness and the friendliness, the love of the mindfulness and practice tradition brought to me and to many who I know. So I'm a big advocate of that. And notice I'm not over-mentioning Buddhism or mantras or vows or philosophy or cosmology or rituals, and I could go on. There's a lot of other parts to Buddhism, it being an ancient religion in this world, older, by the way, than Christianity or Islam. So it's had a lot of time to develop in the different countries and also to gather a lot of accretions to it that may or may not be essential. They're probably certainly not what Buddha himself taught. There may be progress in evolution, but maybe it's just culture growing onto it, and that's fine. That's how things are. Preservation and adaptation as the liberating Dharma teachings move from culture to culture and era to era. Now in the West, adapting to our time. Meditating in chairs, which Japanese masters used to tell us one cannot do. Meditating in pants, which those same Japanese masters used to say, how can you meditate in pants? And people had to take their pants off. Not exaggerating. This is culture, my friend, not Dharma. But mindfulness is like the active ingredient in the many contemplative practices, I think. Otherwise, we're just parroting our prayers mindlessly. Otherwise, we're just mindlessly sitting in the pew thinking about the shopping channel. We're, then we're on the shopping channel. The body's in the pew. Well, we're dozing. So mindfulness is the active ingredient, just like ascorbic acid, vitamin C, 
ascorbic acid is the active ingredient in all of the different citrus fruits, whether it's an orange or a grapefruit or a, a lemon. If you want, if you believe that ascorbic acid is vitamin C is good for a cold or good for something, then that's the active ingredient, regardless of which citrus fruit you squeeze. And regardless of which contemplative practice you squeeze, admittedly, this is a Buddhist view, because now we're not talking about God or other power, we're talking about self-power, what you, you can do through practice, cultivation, and development. We're not talking about faith and devotion and those things. Those are other aspects of practice. But I think any contemplative practice, if you squeeze the juice out of it, the um, mindful awareness component is the active ingredient. Otherwise, we're just going through the motions. And I don't know about you, but I'm an expert at that. I grew up in suburban Judaism where, you know, some of the parents that so insisted that we get bar mitzvahed and married Jews and uh, supported Israel didn't believe in God. So that's a complicated issue. If you're a Jew and you so don't fight for Judaism but you don't believe in God, which is all what Judaism is really about, the monotheism. But so I went through the motions in my younger years, I know about, and observed other people going through the motions too. And I didn't want to do that, so I kind of left my, quote, church of origin. And didn't come back to religion until I was almost 20 when I found something I could do that made sense, that helped me be more aware and wake up and free my heart and mind and open my heart and be with others of kindred spirits in a really a deep way beyond blood family and find a real family of communion. And that really changed my life. So mindfulness was really the foundation of that that carried me through all the different studies and practices and ashrams and monasteries and travels and caves and mountains and deserts and things that I went through in my 20s, 30s and 40s during the 70s, 80s and 90s. And I think it provided a good foundation for everyday life. So now I'm not a monk at a monastery anymore, not living in an ashram, but my home is my temple and my family and friends and my sangha and my satsang. And integration is the name of the game, I think, in the modern world, not seclusion and reclusiveness. For those few who want that, that's fine. A monk or a nun or a hermit's a fine vocation, but that's for the very few. And for those that want to go on an intense retreat or a pilgrimage for a period of time, that's wonderful. But then you have to come back to daily life, whatever that is for you. Work life, family life, home life, sex life, body health life, political life, to whatever extent you're involved, we're all involved in the body politic, the town, the society, the, the fire department, and uh, whoever plows the roads and takes care of the roads here. So uh, integration is the name of the game. That's why I really love the Mahmudra Dzogchen tradition of Tibetan Buddhism that emphasizes ordinary mind or every day. Every day is the way. And uh, everything is included. And not You have to find and stay on the, the razor's edge, the straight and narrow. But that everything is grist for the mill as Ram Das called it a long time ago in one of his classic books, for the spiritual mill. Everything is possible. 
and not being too narrow-minded, not having our head in a vice so we can only see what's right beneath our feet and reject everything else. So, you know, I think it's integration is the name of the game. And mindfulness helps us integrate the sacred spirit at every level, the highest level, deepest level, I believe, into everyday life. Paying attention, being awake and aware, as we say in Dzogchen, and Mahamudra assisted practice, the view meditation in action, not just meditating. Just sitting there cross-legged and not moving is not necessarily any different or better than a frog or a stone, not to put those things down. And I love frogs. Stones are okay. <laughs> but what's happening internally and a deep subtly, that's where the action is, spiritually speaking. So the view, the approach, the gestalt, the worldview, the, the intention, then the meditation, even non-meditation, just being. And from that spontaneously can come proactive, selfless compassion and action or Buddha activity, liberating, helpful, altruistic activity, seva, service to the highest by serving the lowest, serving to God by serving humanity, seva, as we call it in Sanskrit. So view, then meditation. Many meditations may look the same, people just sitting there quietly with their eyes closed or open but quietly or not moving. But what's going on inside may be very uh, different. So we talk about the view or the outlook, then leading to the meditation, which then naturally flows out as um, proactive, unobstructed, let's say positive or Buddha activity, liberating activity as needed, not proselytizing and missionarizing, but as needed in response to causes and conditions. Like if only teaching when asked, only going where invited.